Welcome to Across the Margin Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Thanks so much for joining us here today because I'm here to talk about an important issue and one that I believe is finally getting the sort of attention it demands, and that is the role of policing in society. For many, this is a bit of a touchy subject, unfortunately, due to many factors, chiefly the strong pro-police bias which exists in this country. But I truly hope that people increasingly approach conversations about policing and the problems with the system and potential solutions with open minds and hearts. Because the truth is, these conversations aren't about attacking policemen and women, but about a flawed system. And the goal of these examinations is not to make Americans less safe, but more, and to create a more egalitarian situation where more people feel safe, equal, and provided for. These discussions ultimately are about benevolence. They're about love. It really is so important we have these talks that steer us towards a better world for all. And I believe we have just one of those discussions here for you today. I'm lucky enough to be joined on the program by Alex S. Vitale. Alex is a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College and a visiting professor at London South Bank University. He has spent the last 30 years writing about policing and consults both police departments and human rights organizations internationally. Professor Vitale is the author of City of Disorder, How the Quality of Life Campaign Transformed New York Politics, and also the book The End of Policing. This one is which lies at the core of this episode. He is also a frequent essayist, whose writings have been published in the New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian, The Nation, Vice News, Fortune, and USA Today. He has appeared on CNN, MSNBC, CNBC, NPR, PBS, Democracy Now!, and The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Before I read Alex's book, The End of Policing, which is absolutely a must-read when analyzing the history of and concerns over policing in America, I remember watching a press conference on television in the wake of the tragic deaths of five police officers in Dallas. In that press conference, Chief David Brown said, We're asking cops to do too much in this country. We are. Every societal failure, we put it on the cops to solve. Not enough mental health funding. Let the cops handle it. Here in Dallas, we got a loose dog problem. Let's have the cops chase loose dogs. Schools fail? Let's give it to the cops. That's too much to ask. Policing was never meant to solve all these problems. This address is alluded to in the end of policing, and looking back, this might have been where I personally started contemplating the role of policing in America in a significant way. Not only are we putting way too much on police, I began to realize, but investing far too much in policing, as in reality, policing isn't getting to the core of the problems affecting so many Americans. Not at all. In Alex's book, the idea that is dissected is that the problem is not police training, police diversity, or police methods. The problem is the dramatic and unprecedented expansion and intensity of policing in the last 40 years. The problem is policing itself. If this idea sounds outrageous to you, I urge you strongly to spend time with us here in this episode as we dig into the reasons why. And of course, get your hands on the end of policing. It will open your mind, I assure you. Because for years now, we've been throwing good money after bad. And the answer seems to lie in not investing more in policing, but investing in people. Investing in poor communities who need better housing, jobs, and access to social, health, recreational, and educational services. Alex's book asks, 
Is our society really made safer and more just by incarcerating millions of people? Is asking the police to be the lead agency in dealing with homelessness, mental illness, school discipline, youth unemployment, immigration, youth violence, sex work, and drugs really a way to achieve a better society? Can police really be trained to perform all these tasks in a professional and uncoercive manner? In the pages of The End of Policing, he lays out the case for why the answer to these questions is no, sketches out a plan for constructing an alternative. So now, let's dig in. I am thrilled for you to hear this interview with Alex Vitale. Podcast. Thank you again for taking the time. I'm thrilled to talk about your book, which uh, I found so incredibly eye-opening uh, and informative. So thanks. Well, thank you. So um, kind of a general question to start uh, before we really dig into this. I'm curious. You released The uh, the End of Policing in 2018, I believe. Just two years later, so many of the ideas um, in your book are being championed in the streets and and calls for change kind of feel, they sound louder than ever um, when, it, when it comes to policing. Um, did you, do, you, do you see any of this coming? So the, the book's been out, or the, the hardcover came out three years ago, okay. almost exactly to the day, actually, wow. I think tomorrow. Congrats. And, um, and I conceptualized it, actually, and had to deal with Verso Books before Ferguson happened, mm. before wow. Eric Garner was killed. And I thought at that time that what I was doing was trying to add to the conversation about mass incarceration that was occurring. There was a lot of really great literature and political organizing. And I was like, hey, don't forget the police. This is part of the problem, too. And I felt it wasn't really a central part of the conversation or enough of one. So I had no idea that we were getting ready to embark on like six years of sustained organizing and protest uh, on these issues. When the events happened in May, I was not so surprised that the, the call was for defunding the police and that there were these large protests because I had spent the previous three years crisscrossing the country, you know, in about 20, 25 cities a year you know, meeting with folks, doing public events and seeing that this movement was very alive and kind of percolating, mm-hmm. but under the national radar. Yeah, no, it's and it's pretty it's it was uh, fortuitous to many of us who, um, you know, as the movement grew that that your book did exist. It was something we could many of us could turn to and just kind of learn so much about these problems and um, and the history of policing. And I'd like to kind of go right there. Um, Because it seems clear that the problem with policing starts at the beginning of policing as we know it, Um, you know, because forces were birthed for reasons that were not based in protecting people. That's clearly highlighted in your book. But I was wondering if you could talk some about the reasons um, police forces did come to be. And I guess that all kind of kicks off in London. In some ways, the the conventional discourse always starts with London Mm -hmm. and the formation of the London Metropolitan Police in 1829. 
And this is part of a kind of liberal discourse that says, well, the police exist to enforce the law in a way, excuse me, that benefits everyone equally. And this is a real misunderstanding of the institution. First of all, the London Metropolitan Police, the model for them created by Sir Robert Peel, Robert, Bob, the Bobbies, Mm -hmm. was that he was in charge before that of the English colonial occupation of Ireland. And he has to develop these forms of proto-policing to manage agricultural uprisings in the Irish countryside. And he creates the Irish Peace Preservation Force that then he uses as a model for creating the London Metropolitan Police. The, 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 the United States, well, the second misconception is that the London Metropolitan Police are the first modern police force. But I argue that actually the Charleston City Watch and Guard created in the late 1780s fits the modern definition of policing. They're uniform, 24-hour, professional, law enforcement oriented. But the law that they're enforcing is the law of slavery. Because in Charleston, like a lot of the big cities in the South, slaves actually work outside the home of their owners. They traverse the city to work on uh, wharves, warehouses, workshops of different kinds where they earn wages that are then returned to their owners. And in Charleston, a majority of the city population is black, enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And there is a need on the part of whites to create some force to manage this massive mobile slave population to prevent, you know, slave uprisings, revolts disorderly behavior, uh, the formation of underground reading groups, Mm -hmm. all kinds of things. So policing gets created to manage this system of mobile slavery. And uh, we had our own colonial police force, the Texas Rangers, Mm -hmm. who, you know, drove out and exterminated indigenous populations, Mexican landholders, you know, to make way for white settlement and then enforce the system of Juan Crow up until the 1970s. Yeah, it's it's amazing, uh, you know, that whole chapter on the history of it, the uh, history of policing when it comes to the Texas Rangers, all the, you know, worker strike massacres that occurred, and it's, it's it can be really, really ugly in slavery. But one thing that was really um, uh, interesting to me that I, I don't think a lot of people really discuss this because, of course, I think it's very well known that, you know, policing around slavery definitely did occur. But in the North, something was happening, too. And that's in um, the, the the creation of ghettos and then the policing of ghettos. And I was wondering if you could speak on that a little bit. So no- Northern policing begins really with the management of this massive influx of European immigrants and trying to mold them into a stable working class. Mm -hmm. And that's really why the London Metropolitan Police were created as well. But with the ending of slavery and then the great migration that happens in the early 1900s, police play a central role in the ghettoization of migrant African-Americans who come north looking to escape Jim Crow and to find a place in this new industrial economy. Mm -hmm. And they police the color line. They make sure that blacks don't try to move outside of these ghettoized boundaries. The the physical 
boundaries, but also, you know, social barriers. But um, it was really wild that they were shipping um, to, you know, use, I can't think of a better term right now, but vices in um, and actually into that decriminalized kind of zone area. That was that was really. Yeah. Simon Balto uh-huh. uh, has a great book about the history of policing in Chicago that that describes this uh quite well. So if people are interested in that subject, I I highly recommend it. Good. I I definitely am. That was, that was something kind of new to me. Um, I'd love to jump a little closer to now as, uh, as there's much discussion, um, you know, in, with the problems with policing today and an idea that came up early in the book that kind of recurred from time to time was this uh, broken window style policing. And I was wondering if you could explain what that actually is and and why it's um, problematic. I'm thinking the first question might actually answer the second. But um, yeah, anything yeah. you can tell us there. Sure. So, you know, in, in the 1960s and, and early 70s, we have this urban policy from the White House. The, the war on poverty, big expenditures for housing, a lot of stuff for seniors. And there is this attempt to try to improve life for cities in ways that really do benefit African-Americans. But there is white resistance to this. White flight happens, but also a white backlash. And this is what we might think of as the urban neoconservative movement. Mm -hmm. And so by the late 70s and early 80s, a whole set of right-wing neoconservative intellectuals are looking at the problems of cities and wanting to define them as problems of moral failure, moral deregulation, too much freedom. So what they say is, look, the reason there's crime has nothing to do with poverty, disinvestment, racism. It's, you know, bad child-rearing practices. It's too much individual freedom in the public spaces. And so what we need to do is we need to clamp down on that freedom. How do we do that? We use police to micromanage the public lives of poor people, mostly non-white. And we're going to call this broken windows policing to justify the use of kind of zero tolerance order maintenance policing to, quote, you know, restore order to cities. These policies are ultimately motivated by a lot of racism Mm -hmm. and deep political conservatism, and that's why they're embraced by Republicans like Rudy Giuliani, Mm -hmm. who wants to say, no, we don't need to invest in communities. We don't need to deal with the lack of affordable housing. We just need more police standing on every street corner harassing people for their public behavior. Yeah, I'm really glad you just mentioned that too. That idea that they stress so often is the um, you know personal moral failings. Like that's the problem instead of market failures or bigger things like systematic failures. It's really it's really important stuff. Um, a section of your book entitled "The Liberal View of Policing," um, you speak to what I've heard kind of uh, termed um, copaganda a little bit, and state that it is a liberal fantasy that police exist to protect us from bad guys. What do you, um, what do you mean by that? And also, uh, I think this also speaks to the myth that police are actually prevent crime. Yeah. So for a lot of people, what, what they know about police is what they see on television, an endless stream of fictional television shows 
in which police are finding the hidden serial killers and chasing down the bank robbers and dealing with, you know, organized crime. Mm -hmm. And that somehow without police, you know, society would come completely unglued. And on the nightly news, what they see is an endless stream of bloody violence and the idea that police are the appropriate response to that. And so it's, that's kind of what we're working against is this not only liberal, but also conservative worldview that says that if we could just get the police to be more effective at getting the bad guys, that everything would be fine. But this really misunderstands what police do. As, we, as I mentioned before, you know, they're, they're a system, they're an institution for facilitating regimes of exploitation. They're creating a certain kind of notion of order that's not about broad public safety. It's about protecting the kind of core economic systems of domination in our mm -hmm. society. Now, sometimes that means arresting some street criminals because that's necessary to create this notion of order. Mm -hmm. But it also is about ignoring tons of harms in our society. And it, it also is the case that the vast majority of serious crime is never even reported to the police. Most of the crime that is reported to the police isn't even investigated. Estimates are only about 10% of serious crime is solved by police. Crazy. And so, you know, police come after crime happens and they take a report. And, and their existence, you know, probably prevents some crime from happening, yeah. but there are much better ways of accomplishing that than creating these massive systems of, of armed violence workers. Absolutely. Yeah. That, I mean, that was a misconception that, that you really, um, you know, it was very revealing and there's so many in your book and one, another is about training. Um, cause I see that mentioned so much, um, as one of the fixes, you know, the ideas that people throw around to, to make things better, but you break down how training is actually part of the problem. How, how, how is that the case? So the training that they, that they often receive police officers is really this training of kind of threat neutralization. Uh, I was just did an event with a retired, uh, police Lieutenant and she said, look, we're told to group the population into three categories when we, when we encounter them, which is, you know, passive, resisting, and perpetrators. Mm. And when we see someone resisting us, we don't ask if it's because of a mental health problem or a drug problem or, you know, that they don't understand what's going on because they're hard of hearing. We just neutralize that resistance. Wow. Now, the problem is that people think, well, then if we could just change the training, that this would fix the problem. And this is a misunderstanding as well, in part because of two things. One is that we imagine that police can be turned into social workers, mm -hmm. but police are violence workers. That's what yep. distinguishes them from all other parts of government is that capacity and legal authorization to use violence. Mm -hmm. But the other misunderstanding is the functional role that we've given police is incompatible with nonviolence. 
when when our politicians tell the police to wage a war on drugs and a war on crime and a war on gangs and a war on terror and a war on disorder and all the rest, there will be violence. Mm -hmm. And if we train them in nonviolence, they will just ignore the training, which is what we hear from police routinely, is that as soon as they get out of the academy, they're told, well, just ignore the training. <laughs> this is how we really do the job. It's unbelievable. I would like to point out to any listeners who might not have um, read the book yet, there is a lot on this topic that was really, really eye-opening, whether it's the independent training companies they use, um, all the problems with SWAT, uh, the push for, um, you know, the push of a warrior men uh, mentality, all that uh, kind of ingrained in that whole training section was really, really something. Um, I'd like to ask about one other myth. Um, it really changed my thinking some because I think I believe this could be the case. And that is that a diverse police force um, could could be a, a good thing, that it actually would lead to, um, you know, lower numbers of of the, the problems that we're seeing, but um, you you explained how this actually changes very little. Yeah, I mean, it would be great if if we could just fix this problem through diversification, yeah. but the research shows that this is a pipe dream. The numbers this don't is, add up, yeah. The numbers don't add up, yeah. and you just talk to African-American people mm -hmm. about whether or not they can count on a black police officer giving them a break or treating them better. And the, the, the reality is that that's just not the case. Yeah. Uh, so it, maybe it's important as a jobs program, you know, yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. to have yeah. more African-American people mm -hmm. earning these high salaries, yep. but it's not going to change policing. Yep. And what, will, what really what needs to be done is not to diversify policing. It's to increase the number of jobs for people to work in their own communities doing something that's really going to help the community, working in community centers, working as violence interrupters, yeah. working as social workers, working as clinical, you know, mental health workers and substance abuse workers. Let's create those jobs for young people who are looking for a way to help their communities. Absolutely. Um, and let's pay them at least as well as we pay police officers. Yes, yes, absolutely. All that. Um, I'm looking forward to steer steer towards some solutions just like that. I those everything you just said there is word. Uh, it's really great. Um, but I want to just talk about the war on drugs real quick because I found it really, really disturbing how purposefully it was used against uh, hippies, the the black community, and just to, to just to disrupt uh, th those communities. And I was wondering if you could talk about how the war on drugs wasn't and isn't about public safety. It's, it's a political fix and, and it's about managing, um, what was it? Yes. Yeah, suspect populations. Yeah. So the, the modern war on drugs gets created during the Nixon administration. Now the we, we've had previous rounds of drug scares and, and drug prohibition that targeted Chinese populations, Mexican populations, African-Americans, you know, pre previously. But the real massive ramping up of mass criminalization begins with the Nixon administration. And it's an entirely political project. In the wake of the victories of the civil rights movement that, that include the Johnson administration, you know, signing the Civil Rights Act and, and other important civil rights legislation, Republicans 
try to win over historically Democratic white Southern voters who voted Democratic because Lincoln was a Republican and he freed the slaves and blacks voted Republican in the South and whites voted Democratic. And Nixon said, wait a second, Johnson has betrayed you by getting rid of segregation and Jim Crow. So we're going to be the new home for white racism. We can't bring back segregation, but we can create this war on crime. And we can use that to go after blacks to keep them in a second-class status. And since crime was historically a state matter, Nixon's people said, look, we can use drugs because drugs cross state lines, they cross national boundaries, so we can make it a federal issue. So Mm -hmm. they create the DEA, they create all these new federal drug laws, they incentivize local governments to ramp up their own drug laws, and this is so successful in winning over white voters that Clinton, when he runs, feels that he has to outdo the Republicans Mm -hmm. on this. So he talks about expanding the death penalty, more money for cops, more money for prisons. And this is what he does in the 94 crime bill, which radically expands mass incarceration with the drug war playing a central role in all of Mm -hmm. that. So this has become a bipartisan consensus. You can get elected by using the drug war to criminalize black and brown and poor white people. Yeah, it's really, it's really, um, it's kind of tough reading about the uh, Nixon Southern strategy right now. It's really <laughs> uh, disturbing because you see, that, yeah, Trump trying it's, to do the same, same thing. thing. It's he's he's reading the same playbook. Um, it's definitely. But insane. Biden is not really doing much differently, right? I he know, wants to I give know. more money to police. Yep. He he's not serious about he's, doing anything about the drug war. No, he's 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 definitely turned his back on you know the whole defund the police idea almost fully. Um, and I liked how you used the examples, um, you know, because we're talking about drugs, the of, um, you know, because decriminalization can mean so much. And the examples of what happened with alcohol and gambling, um, how the scope of uh, policing was reduced without sacrificing public safety. I thought that was a really interesting point. Um, it's a bit of a side note, but I was really um, I was that I didn't know that about Billie Holiday. How that was very upsetting. I didn't realize she died in police custody after being targeted um strongly by drugs are um harry uh anslinger yeah, i didn't know yeah. that it's an amazing book called chasing the screen okay that that really details the this war on billy holiday by by the anslinger drug warriors i have, i really that thank you nothing another he, he made it a personal mission he, to get her that's crazy. and i think was personally responsible for her death yeah, that's 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 wild. I I really thank you for that book recommendation. I need to know more. That was that was very disheartening. Um, let's talk some solutions or just ideas that could maybe start turning the tide. At the conclude of your book, you state as long as the basic mission of policing remains unchanged, none of these reforms will be achievable. Those reforms you were speaking of are ideas about you know new training regimes, enhanced accountability, greater public role in direction and oversight of policing. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on how, if possible, the mission of police kind of entirely could be changed. You think that's possible? Well, I don't think it's going to happen all at once. But we're seeing some really positive signs. Mm -hmm. 
a growing number of cities are trying to figure out how to get police out of the mental health business, for instance. Mm. So Denver has launched a, a program. Portland's getting ready to roll theirs out. Albuquerque and Austin have Love plans it. in the works. Funding has been made available. And a, a whole bunch of other cities are exploring this. So creating more community-based mental health services, mm-hmm. creating 24-hour crisis response that's independent of policing. There's also uh, a number of cities that are uh, getting rid of school policing, mm-hmm. bringing back counselors, wraparound services for students, rethinking zero-tolerance school discipline policies. So that we're seeing people beginning to address some of the kind of uh, first steps of this. But decriminalizing or legalizing drugs and sex work and things mm-hmm. like that, we got a long way to go on that. <laughs> sure. But I think if we can establish the logic that police are not the only tool for addressing yep. social problems, that criminalization is a way to distract us from addressing profound racial and economic inequalities in our society, yep then that's the pathway to getting to the kind of world that doesn't need to rely on policing and, you know, putting human beings into cages. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, um, many recoil from the idea of defunding the police, but the, you know, the more you look into it, the idea is about, you know, not just defunding the police, but reinvesting in communities. And you really lay out um, how this can help. So, so, perfectly in your book and it just and how important it is so that was really really good to read I have um kind of a general question thinking about how it was you know um, almost three years to the day you said when the book was released and I was just kind of curious if um because things you know you did mention some of those changes that that are happening with that in mind if there was to say be another chapter or if you were to even write it now is there anything not in the end of policing, you would be dissecting or maybe even talking about? Yeah, and actually we're working on a, a new edition of the book. Oh, great. So may, maybe some of this will end up there in one form or the other. Yep. Uh, you know, I did not write a chapter about the policing of domestic violence. Mm. Uh, we talked about it, and I felt that there wasn't really enough that had been written. There was this amazing book by Beth Ritchie from Chicago called Arrested Justice, mm-hmm about how black women have not been served by the criminal justice system taking over the issue of domestic violence. But since I wrote the book, a a number of really excellent pieces have have come out. Lee Goodmark's book, uh, Decriminalizing Domestic Violence, for instance. So I I will definitely be saying something about that and how we need to get that out of the criminal justice system. Uh, Also, traffic enforcement. We've Mm. seen a lot of good work recently about, you know, how pointless the vast majority of police traffic enforcement is and how most of it, it just involves uh, searching for drugs. You know, so we we, uh, Berkeley, California has decided to get the police out of the traffic enforcement business. So they're going to create some civilian alternatives and, and use technology and other things. So. Uh, that's another really exciting area. Yeah. And I think the other thing I would, I want to add to the book is more about how to move forward. Mm. How do we, how do we actually do this? And I think that has to center around a conversation about uh, a process of community consultation, mm-hmm. about identifying what the kind of public safety challenges that communities face are 
and then that from that we can begin the conversation of, of what the alternatives might look like. I like that. I'd love to read more kind of about a pragmatic approach to move for, move forward. Um, wondering real quick, I know sometimes I take a touch of heat um, for my discussions about policing or when people see me um, out in protest, but uh, you know, and I think that's obviously due to the strong pro police bias in this country, but I was, did you receive any ill will or harsh criticism on the release of this book at all? Well, you know, a certain amount of trolling and hate mail, not so much, from the book per se, but mm-hmm. from a, a you know a media appearance okay. here or there, yeah. uh, you know there's been a few attack pieces and Breitbart and stuff. But actually, I've been amazed how little uh, more resistance really from liberals. Oh wow! <laughs> from the the especially from academics and uh-huh. policy people who make their living selling police reform. Oh okay. Okay. And so they're very upset about what I do, and, and they're upset about the whole police abolition movement mm-hmm. because it's going to put them out of business. Yeah, it's going to affect their pocketbook. Yeah, no, I was, yeah. Really, I was just really curious about that. That's interesting that's, where, the, where it's coming from, but that makes a lot of sense, too. Um, your book's great. It taught me so much, um, and so did this conversation. I really um, I just want to thank you. Thank you for the insight. Um, oh, you're thank, most thanks welcome. Thanks for the end of policing, and thanks for your time today. Great questions. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> Good. Thanks, Alex.